it's a shocker. But it will be soon. We're, we are close to the end. Deuteronomy chapter 29 is where we'll pick it up tonight. Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant or alongside or with the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. So Moses is now, the Deuteronomy is reaching back, reminding us the covenant was made at Horeb, and now Moses has spent the entire book of what we call Deuteronomion, Elah Devarim. He's spent the book teaching, reteaching the covenant, going back over the covenant, and then he wants to end by confirming it. And it's interesting to me, right here at the end, he starts as he did at the beginning, these are the words. Elah devarim. These are the words. But then he adds habarit of the covenant. So these are the words of the covenant, he says, or it says, which the Lord commanded Moses to make. So to reconfirm, and that's, that's really what's been going on here is a reconfirmation of that previous covenant. Verse 1, and you may want to note this in your Bibles, if you were reading a Hebrew Bible, you would see 69 verses in chapter 28, and you would see 28 verses in chapter 29, because verse 1 of chapter 29 in the Hebrew Bible is verse 2 for us. Which makes sense because if you read verse 1, it speaks of these are the words of the covenant. But then following that, what is spoken in the rest of 29, 30, 31 are not the words of the covenant. He's already spoken the words of the covenant. And in fact, concluded all of it in chapters 27 and 28. We know this because there's a parallel here, and, and this is an ancient uh, literature, specifically ancient covenants that were made, often ended with blessings and curses. You lay out the covenant, all the, the terms and conditions thereof, and then at the end, here are the blessings if you keep it, and here are the curses if you break it. Well, that's exactly what just happened. Chapter 27, the curses began, and then chapter 28 begins with the blessings, and then it ends actually with more of the curses. And what, what takes place here is now over. That, that's the covenant. These are the words of the covenant. Picking up in verse 2, Moses is now going to emphasize the implications of breaking the covenant. He's going to emphasize what will happen if they turn away from Yahweh because God knows this people will turn from him. In fact, as we begin tonight, we start with heartbreaking news. God knows this people for 40 years of input, for the deliverance, for the love he's shown them, for the forgiveness time and time again, for the bringing them through, for the deliverance even in battles, all that they've gone through and the Lord has poured into them through Moses. Moses, 120 years old. And at the end of all this, we find, and he will say it again and again tonight, this people will turn away from me. Now, we always take the human perspective, don't we? Take the divine perspective just a moment. What is that like for God? Well, I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I'm not sure how I feel about that and, you know, all these curses that he's laying out and, and really laying a bummer on me, man. All these warnings. And hey, what about the Lord? What about the Lord who has done all of this and now has to declare the word, the news, that he knows 
They are going to fall away. This is very different from us because we don't ever know when the moment of betrayal is going to come. Now, I would venture to guess many of you at some point or another have felt betrayal, have been betrayed by a friend or a loved one, and maybe it was a little betrayal or maybe it was a great big betrayal, but you really didn't see it coming. You know, there's a blessing in that. All the way up to the very moment of the betrayal, you didn't have to worry about it. You didn't think about it. You were unaware of it. You didn't know. God's known all along this people would betray him. God was fully aware, even as he's delivering them through the plagues out of Egypt, this people are going to turn around and follow the gods of all the nations. These people will cast me out. They will ignore me. God knows it all along, and he loves them anyway. What would you do? If I knew person X was going to betray me, I'd be backing off. I wouldn't be showing love. I'd be protecting the heart, stepping away, stepping perhaps even completely out of relationship so they don't have an opportunity to hurt me. But the Lord, the Lord pours on the love and it's consistent from the Hebrew scriptures all the way through the coming of Jesus. I believe all the way to present day, this is consistent. This is how God is. He knows those who will betray him and he loves them anyway to the very end nth degree of his love. John 13 verse 1 says, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's Jesus. During supper, the devil already having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Listen, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So think about the power of just knowing that. Got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. You know the story. He began to wash their feet and two of the feet belonged to Judas, who Jesus knew was about to betray him. That very night, he tenderly washes the feet of his betrayer. John 13, 11 tells us that. He knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. John 13, 26, Jesus said, they're all asking, well, am I the betrayer? Will I betray you? Will I betray you? And Jesus says, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Two things to know about that. For him to hand it to Judas directly, Judas had to be sitting right next to him, which would have been in a seat of honor, right hand or the left. Judas was right there. But secondly, we know that the handing, the dipping of the morsel, the handing it went by, by the, the person who is holding that, that meal, that Passover dinner. To do that is a, show, a sign, a show of deep affection. As if Jesus was saying, Judas, bro, I love you. I care about you. You are my friend, my dear friend. And in that moment, only Judas and Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. It's a little humorous that the rest of the apostles were so clued out, had no idea what was going down before their very eyes. But I believe in that moment, Jesus was offering Judas yet again a way out, should he choose to take it. Of course, he didn't. Why would Jesus do that? That's love. 
That's love. Even in the garden, do you know, remember what happened when Judas shows up and he's got the Roman guard there with him? And he goes up to kiss Jesus to tell the guard who it is that, that is this Messiah person. And he comes up to Jesus and, and Jesus says, what do you want, friend? I mean, he's calling him his friend in the moment of betrayal. That's, that's Jesus. That's love. And it's the same love we see in God the Father, the same love that, that causes God in these chapters to speak words of warning. Because that's what love does. Love always warns far in advance, look, if you do this, this is what the consequence is going to be. This is what's going to happen. Pleading, as it were, not to turn away, love now gives words of warning on the plains of Moab. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Now listen, aside from Joshua and Caleb, none of these were adults at the time. These were all kids and some of their kids at this point perhaps. But they were all now grown children, but they were children in Egypt at the time of the plagues. They were children there at Mount Sinai at the time of the burning, shaking mountain. They were children through the wilderness and in the 40-year journey. They were children experiencing all these things and growing up this way under the tutelage of Moses and the Lord. And so Moses reminds them, you have seen all the Lord did. And it's kind of like when you're, as an adult, sometimes you ever look back to your childhood and think, did that really happen? You know, there was a certain event and something took place, but you, but you got to scratch your head a bit and say, I, I don't know if that really happened or did I just embellish it in my own mind? We do plenty of that. That's what photographs have done to us is that we look at pictures and we create stories in our brains about the picture, which really isn't what happened, but that becomes our memory. And so here are the children, and they're listening to Moses espouse all these things, but there had to be children of Israel. They're on the plains of Moab going... God, I, I mean, we've heard all the stories about the plagues. I was there, but I don't know. Was that, was there really frogs all over the land? And did, did the mountain really shake? Did we walk through the Red Sea? I mean, we've been told that over and over. That was 40 years ago, man. I look back 40 years, there's all kinds of things. I just don't have a clue. Did it really happen or not? Well, Moses is saying, your eyes have seen it. Your eyes have seen it. Yes, it's legit. Yes, this is true. Yeah, it all really did happen. But watch this, verse 4. Yet, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Check it out. Look at, your, look at the clothes. The label's still fresh. Look at what you're wearing. Your sandal is not worn out on your foot. Your tevas are still brand new, bro. You have not eaten bread. What'd they eat? Manna. Hand fed from God. You haven't drunk wine or strong drink in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Whoa, wait a minute, Moses. Because <laughs> Moses is speaking here. And he says, that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. Is he taking a position that is not his to take? No, no, no. Kyle and Delich, I like the way they put it. With the appeal to the gracious guidance of Israel by God through the desert, the address of Moses passes imperceptibly into an address from the Lord. 
as though Moses now is not speaking and they are hearing the Lord. And that can happen. That happens even when, when a pastor is reading and, you know, saying stupid puns and, and things and, and you're like, okay, that guy's an idiot. And then all of a sudden there's this wisdom that comes pouring out and you realize all he's doing is reading the words of Jesus and you don't hear me anymore, you hear the Lord because it's him. And so in this moment, that's what's taking place. Moses is speaking for the Lord, declaring his faithfulness. But notice verse 4, Moses says, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And that should sum up a debate right there. Faith is a given. Faith is a given. That is, it's given to you. So stop stressing about trying to be more faithful because it's not something you generate. It is given to you. Faith is a given. Now stay with me on this thought here for a moment. It's taken me 57 years. <laughs> okay, maybe like 47, but it's taken me a long time to think this one through. Faith is given to you. Jesus said, and it used to bother me to no end. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does Jesus mean by that? He means what he said. You want to come to Jesus? You can't get there unless God draws you to Jesus. There is a drawing taking place. Faith. Faith is given. It's given to us. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. He's the teacher. You know what you know about Jesus and about the Lord, not because of intensive years of Bible study or because some pastor told you. You know what you know about the Lord because you've been taught of God. Faith is given. And he has woven this into your life and he has spoken it to you and he has said to th things to you on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, in a home Bible study that no teacher has ever said. You ever get that stuff? I get it all the time. People come up and go, man, when you said blah, 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 that really touched me. And I'm like, I didn't even say that. I didn't say that. I don't say that to them because, you know, I want a little credit, but... <laughs> No, I mean, it, I, and I, I will say, well, that, that was the Lord speaking to you. I'm not smart enough to say that. I didn't figure that one out. Faith is given. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Good. Okay, so it's, it's power to those who believe. How do I believe? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, that means two things. It means, one, that faith is ever-increasing. Your faith grows to more faith, which grows to more faith, from faith to faith. But it also means from his trust to yours. That is, he puts trust in you to give you faith to trust in him. And that's how it works. Faith is a given thing. Growing, increasing, but it's got to come from somewhere. You didn't generate that. I didn't just suddenly one day go, ha, ha, I believe. No, the Father was drawing me, ever drawing me to Jesus as he has drawn you. God gives faith. He's the one who, note this, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. My friends, God gives faith, which is the ability to know him by heart and to recognize him on sight, and to comprehend 
in what you're hearing that it is of the Lord. And by the way, just to dispel any fear about this or notion of where Rick might be going with this whole God gives faith thing, he will give faith to anyone who asks. Having trouble believing in God? Ask him. Ask him. Lord, I hear these Bible studies. I like what I hear about Jesus. It's impressive to me, but I just, I'm, I'm really struggling with taking that step that those Christians call faith. What do I do? Lord, Lord, give me faith. Because God gives faith. That's where it comes from. I'll prove it to you. Go over to John or Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke 17. Go ahead, turn there with me just for a minute. Let's, let's pause, leave the kids there in Moab. Luke 17, verse 5. Because this is exactly what takes place with Jesus and the apostles. Jesus has just been talking to them about forgiveness, which, by the way, is a factor of faith, but I'm not going to mess with that right now. He's talking to them about forgiveness, and the apostles have the, the, the momentary wisdom to realize that forgiveness was bigger than they were, and they didn't know how to forgive people. And so their response, as Jesus said, I say, Repent if, if someone, uh, verse four, if someone sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles have got to be scratching their heads and shaking them and going, oh, no way. So they said to the Lord, increase our faith. Somebody was smart enough to realize the only way I'm going to forgive someone seven times in the same day for doing the same dumb thing against me is by faith, baby. I got to have faith. So they say, increase our faith. Now watch this. I told our staff this morning, one of the funny things to me is oftentimes someone will say something, ask Jesus a question, and then he'll go off on this interesting dimensional discussion over here, and we kind of read it and go, okay, all right, what? And then we just forget about it. Jesus is always answering the question. So you can note that when you're studying through the Gospels and Jesus says something just really bizarre or out of left field, you know, if someone said to me, Rick, increase my faith. I go, okay, here are the steps. Jesus goes to a parable. <laughs> Jesus goes to, you know, story language. Watch what he says. He said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, if you're one of the apostles, you'd say, yeah, increase our faith. That's what we're asking for. Make that happen, Lord. So Jesus says this, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he does the things which were commanded to, which he was commanded to do, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. Do you realize what Jesus just did is explain how to increase faith? How do I increase faith? Do what you're supposed to do. First of all, he's the master, you're the slave. Now the slaves come to Jesus and they say, increase our faith. And the slave doesn't come to the master and say, hey, I'm going to sit down and eat right now. This is not a, a magical filling. Increase our faith. And Jesus goes, Zhong! 
and all of a sudden they just have huge faith. It's not how it works. Any more than a slave coming in from the field just sits down and starts eating at the master's table. No, that's not how it works. Do your job. Complete what was given to you. Put on the right clothes. And then you'll be ready to take in faith, to eat and to drink. There's a process at work here. Faith, listen, faith increases as I keep the commands. Do you realize in the whole process with Israel, he started with commandments and law? Historically, let's start with commandments and law, and then we're going to move them into faith. Now, Abraham had faith, man of faith. Many of the children of Israel we see over time had faith. Joshua, Caleb, these guys had faith. But God gives law and says, here, I want you to practice these things and do these things and keep this thing, keep this law. Why, Lord? This is amazing. The law, the keeping of commandments, the doing of the word of God, increases my faith. It's not just about pleasing God by doing what he says. It is about faith on the increase as I do what he's asked me to do. He knows how this process works. When my kids come to me and says, Dad, say it's Christopher. I want to build my biceps. I want big old biceps. And by the way, we've had that conversation. I, I, want, I want to have big biceps. I don't say, okay, Chris, sit down. I say, work it out. Start working out. They will grow. The faith muscle grows as we keep the commandments and then the Lord who gives faith, he increases the faith. He starts by giving us faith. That is even the ability to ask for the increase. And then we start to walk out these things and to do these things and they grow in the service. It's like the old hymn that I think nails it, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You know what? There are Christians who are miserable in Jesus. It's not his fault. But they're miserable because they think the commands are the requirements that I've got to do these things and I have to prove myself to him and I have to somehow have faith, which I don't even know what that really means, but I'm going to church, man, and I'm going to make it happen and glory be the day when he comes to get me. <laughs> That's not Jesus. To be happy in Jesus is to trust, drop a faith, and obey. And the more we obey, the greater the faith. Increase our faith, Lord. Okay. Finish your job. Put on the right clothes, robes of righteousness, and come to the table. And by the way, I, I think even the table increases our faith as we continue to come before the Lord. Well, back in Deuteronomy. So Moses says this very profound statement that the Lord has not given you a heart to know. He's got to drop the faith into your hearts. You've seen all this stuff, but you don't get it. You don't understand it yet. In verse 7, he says, When you reach this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Ug, the king of Bashan. That's actually how you say Ug. If you'd like to say Og, that's okay too. He came out to meet us for battle, and we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. And that's interesting to me because right there, that is a pre-fulfillment of the covenant. Which is why the Lord mentions it here. Is he saying, look, you're not even in the land yet and we already have land that's been inherited. 
That's the pre-fulfillment. The covenant land is there on the other side of the Jordan, but we're giving this land, I'm giving land away right here. So you already have a taste of the fact that there is an inheritance and it's just waiting for you. Verse nine, he says, so keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders and your officers, even all the men of Israel and your little ones, your wives, and the alien who's within your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God is making with you today in order that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God just as he spoke to you and he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Now, not with you alone, Am I making this covenant and this oath? But with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. Who's that? Children's, 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 children. For you know, verse 16, how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations, their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Ever have trouble identifying with the concept of idolatry? Idolatry. I know in ancient Israel that was a problem because they had all the idolatrous nations around them and they had the, the, the pagan temples and the temple prostitutes and the, and the feasts to their idol gods. And so, yeah, I, that was a problem for Israel. But, but, man, for the current Christian, idolatry? And, of course, what, what we pastors have done is we've slid it into it's your car, you know, or it's your house or, it's, or some tangible thing that you... And, and I've even said in the past, and I, and I believe this is true, whatever becomes our devoted thing is an idol. And we can make that application, but it still seems a slight bit flimsy to me. This idea of idolatry for the modern or the postmodern or the post-postmodern or whatever we are now. The Christian of today, how is idolatry relevant to us? And we have the answer right here. It becomes very clear there at the uh, verse 18. It's so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away. That's idolatry. Idolatry is when the heart turns away from the Lord. Doesn't really even matter what to. See, idolatry, I often think it's, I, I, I have an idol that I worship, so I've gone to that idol. Well, I don't have any idols in my house. It's not just going to, it's going away from it's turning the heart from the Lord. That's idolatry. It is a human heart problem. The biblical answer, Colossians 3.5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Those are all heart problems. And Paul says all these things, they amount to idolatry. Okay, wait a minute. So if I'm greedy, I'm an idol worshiper? Yeah, because you've turned your heart away from the Lord. If I'm impure or sexually immoral, I'm an idol worshiper? Yeah, because you've turned your heart away from the Lord. That's idolatry. Man, I can relate to that. I don't know if you can, but the idea of turning the heart. 
And that's why I think John, even to the church, the last thing he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, and by the way, there's a real good case you can make for 1 John being the very last letter of John. And if it was, in fact, then it's the last thing that he wrote, and it's the last thing that he said, and he said, little children, guard yourselves from idols. What are you saying, John? See to it that your heart does not turn away from the Lord. Now, verse 18 is interesting also because he concludes by saying that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood, wormwood. Wormwood is la'ana in the Hebrew. And la'ana was a, a bitter plant root, kind of a dark greenish, uh, oily liquid. It could also, that same word la'ana was used of animal liver bile. That sounds nice. These things were used in ancient medicine. You know, we, we for years in our house, I don't, I don't think they advise us anymore, but we kept a bottle of Ipecac syrup, right? You ever try that? Don't. It's not, it works. And we call that medicine, right? Well, they had crazy stuff back then, and animal liver bile was one of those things. Wormwood was this, it, it, it made you sick if you ingested it, and especially if ingested it in any decent quantity, it could cause convulsions and paralysis, and even death. But that word, la'ana, is used eight times in the Old Testament, always, always for bitterness. It is the word they use to describe bitterness. Proverbs chapter, three, chapter 5, verse 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood. Or Amos chapter 5, verse 6, Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench for Bethel those who turn justice into wormwood or bitterness and cast righteousness down to the earth. So bitterness is that picture of bitterness. If you, if you even put a, a drop of this liquid on your tongue, it's horribly bitter. It's only used one time in the New Testament. And the word in the Greek is absinthos. Absinth is the word that we use in English. And it's in Revelation chapter 8, verse 10, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called absinthos, wormwood. And a third of the waters became absinthos, wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter, and that speaks of a time in the coming tribulation that will infect the planet, and it's going to be an awful time where a star brings a third of the waters, a third of the fresh waters on planet Earth will be bitter water, undrinkable. Drink it, you get convulsions, you get paralysis, you get death. The punishment fits the crime. What do you mean? Rebellion is a bitter poison that kills, ultimately kills. Rebellion leads to bitterness, not just a person, but it affects or infects an entire people. We've talked recently a couple of times about this idea of bitterness, and the Hebrew pastor says in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Many be defiled. 
Moses ties it all together. Idolatry, the turning the heart away from God, is going to cause bitterness in your rebellion. That rebellion is going to spread like wormwood, like poisonous fruit. It will be a root among all of you. It's going to infect you. It will infect your children, your generations. Bummer, Moses. Man, you're bringing us down. I love you too much not to say this. Bummer, Lord, why are we spending the end of Deuteronomy, the end of Torah, on warnings? Because he would say, I love you. But he goes on, verse 19, it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. You know how people say that today. I'm good. No, I'm f- I don't need your Jesus. I don't need that church stuff. I'm, I'm at peace. I'm good. Yeah, and there's a bitter root that is growing in the heart. He says in verse 20, the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written down in this book of the law. Why? Because bitterness defiles the many. You go off, I've said before, we don't sin in a vacuum. You go off on your own, you rebel against the Lord, you turn your heart away from God, you become idolatrous, you will not be the only person affected by that move. It will take out others. And the Lord would rather put that down in the individual that the many would be spared than allow it to spread and then kill the many. Verse 22, now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes up from a distant land when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases which the Lord has inflicted it or with which the Lord has inflicted it, they will say, verse 23, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown, unproductive, no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And by the way, that's absolutely true. It happened. It took place. A man as famous as Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. I've mentioned this book many times, and it's, it's really a very funny read called The Innocent Abroad, or Innocence Abroad. And in this book, he talks about traveling the land of Israel. And what he describes there could be described in the first line of verse 23. It's a land of brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown, unproductive, no grass grows in it. He describes it. You can read that in the middle of the book. He's there in the mid-1800s moving through the land of Israel and saying, this is a complete and utter waste. It's supposed to be the holy land. He was shocked, but it was destroyed, wiped out. And as a matter of fact, I've told you this before too. Hadrian in 135 AD salted the land to destroy it. So the land did become brimstone and salt, exactly as was written here, far in advance, 1,500 years before that took place. A burning waste. By the way, some of you have heard this, but i got to throw this out. I just find it fascinating. If you're reading in the Russian Bible, the word absinthos isn't translated wormwood. The word is translated Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Wormwood. 35 years ago, 1986, was when the Russian nuclear reactor at Chernobyl melted down. Chernobyl was a Russian dream town, by the way, in the Ukraine, northeast Ukraine. 
It was a beautiful town being built up, and they wanted this to be one of the jewels of, of the entire uh, Russian state. And then the reactor melted down. And today, the cleanup, by the way, cleanup for that cost billions, billions of dollars. And it's still a waste. You can look at pictures. I, Google them when you get home if you just feel like looking at desolation. Chernobyl, it, it cost more than 4,000 lives in the last 30 years, people who are infected by the nuclear poisoning. And the region now is called the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. What was meant to be the pride of Russia, the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. I mentioned that and the wormwood because bitterness, that's what it does. It spreads out, it destroys like nuclear fallout. But this, this is specific. This is the bitterness that comes of being taught of the Lord or, or hearing about the Lord, but turning the heart away from him, rejecting the offer. Remember before I said, God gives faith. Faith is given. So the Lord is reaching out, handing, saying, here, take some faith. Would you like faith? You want to trust me? I'll, I'll, I'll start you off. I'll get you going. And the person says, nope, and turns away. Or the person takes a look at it, sits in church for a while, checking it out, and then finally says, eh, no. This is a very specific bitterness that grows over time in the heart. Verse 24, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? And then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. We have fulfilled that numerous times in this fellowship. Huh? We've said that's why God did what he did. Because they didn't keep the covenant. Because they broke faith with God. Because Israel turned away, that was the result. So we've done exactly what it says, then men will say. Well, we've said. Verse 26, they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods who they have not known and whom he has not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And Yahweh uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. Wait a minute. Do you hear how that's being written? It's written like a historical statement. This hasn't even happened yet. And Moses is saying, this is, this is what people are going to say. They're going to say, when this happens, they're going to say this is why. And he is describing exactly what happened to Israel. It's amazing to me. And who did this? Who drove them out of the land? It was God. Yahweh, the God who delivered them and fed them, saved them, and protected them, and provided for them, and revealed himself. I am who I am. Yahweh told them his name, showed them who he was through Moses and through all of the care over 40 years. And now Yahweh's driving them out, or he's going to drive them out of the land, ultimately. Makes you wonder what happens to a land what happens to a nation that's been blessed by God but decides to turn its back on God? I think we're seeing it. I think we're experiencing it. Now, America is no Israel. And America didn't enter into the same kind of covenant relationship as God's chosen people. But America has been blessed and blessed richly only because there's so much 
of the Lord and his commands in our Constitution. Because this nation was originally built on faith. I'm not saying it's a perfect nation, never is. But we followed and we believed as a people largely. We were blessed by God, but now this nation is literally turning its back on God. We see it across the board. People rejecting God, kicking him out of the public square. And my friends, bitterness spreads like wormwood. People say, how, how can our nation be where it is today? Bitterness spreads like wormwood. Turn away from God. This is what happens to a people. And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we're watching America go the same path of Israel and do the same thing with the same results. They call that insanity, right? When you do the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, you don't get it, but you keep doing it. It's insane. That ought to rattle us to the American core. You know, and, and a lot of us are talking about these things right now and the oppression and the darkness and the difficulty of, of these days. And at times, it really feels like the direction that our country is going away from God, it, it, it's hopeless. How, how many of you have felt that? We're, we're over the point of, yeah, point of no return. Yeah. It's hopeless. There's no way back. Listen, God always provides the way back. And in contrast to the wormwood star poisoning a third of the waters of earth, God provided at the waters of Mara a tree that makes sweet. The bitterness can be made sweet by the tree, the tree, the cross. The cross makes it sweet. The cross can take a bitter life of a friend of yours, a brother, sister, a loved one, a father and mother, someone that you know who is lost and soaking in the bitterness. The tree can make it sweet. The tree can bring the salvation. It's the only thing that dispels bitterness in the heart. Well, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. It's one of my favorite verses. It's the secret things, they belong to God. There are still plenty of unknowns. But think about all the things that we do know. The things that have been revealed to us, specifically in Jesus, who said, John 15, 14, you're my friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. Guess what happens now, people of faith? People who have done their service, put on the right clothes, come to the table. Guess what happens now? You're his friends. I no longer call you slaves. And, and, and we're going to sit at table with Jesus, even as we do to here tonight, and he reveals things to us. And he shows us things, amazing things. In fact, I love how Paul puts it. Let me just read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they'd understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, Isaiah 64, verse 4, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, 
and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, Paul writes, God revealed them through the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. As Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But, but the things revealed, they belong to us. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And at the end of this passage, he says, we have the mind of Christ. The things revealed. We know stuff now, praise the Lord, that people have never known. I'm not talking about the bridge in this particular church. I'm talking about the church. The followers of Jesus. Man, the veil was torn. As Paul said, when, when someone believes in Jesus, when someone says Jesus is Lord, the veil is lifted. Suddenly, revelation comes. And we know all kinds of things that the Lord has shown us in Jesus and through Jesus, things like what I just shared a moment ago, the tree that makes bitter sweet. We know that now. We understand it. Thank you, Lord. That to me is what makes Bible study so much fun is we know stuff. So we read this and go, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I was aware of that. Who told you? Jesus did because I'm taught of the Lord. I am taught of the Lord. Well, chapter 30. Keep going. So it shall be when all of those things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, listen to this, man, in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. They're not even in the land yet. And Moses says, you're going to remember what I'm saying right now, when you're banished in the nations all around the world. He says, and verse 2, you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. When we started Deuteronomy, remember what we call this? Words to take to heart. Because at the end of all the commands, it's not about being a perfect commandment keeper. It is about the heart, the heart given to the Lord. And the commandments encourage that and develop that and bless that faith. But it's still the heart from beginning to end that God is interested in. He says in verse 7, The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you who persecuted you. What's he talking about in verse 7? I believe that's prophecy of the tribulation. God is going to inflict on this world all the things that Israel was cursed by and far more for the, for the world's cursing of Israel. 
And he says, verse 8, And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. This is so much bigger, get this, so much bigger than their return from Babylon. That was one nation. Assyria spread out. That was one nation that took them captivity, or took them captive. And, and then Babylon, one nation, took them away. And 70 years later, man, they, they came back. This is so much bigger than the return from Babylon in the late 500s BC. This prophetic return is, as Moses says, from the ends of the earth. He's talking about the end of the age. He is speaking of Israel's restoration at the time of the tribulation. Looking all the way out, this is astounding prophecy. He's talking about the second recovery of Israel. The first was from Babylon. What about Assyria? There was no recovery. There was just kind of a spreading out and some fled down and became part of Judah and others just kind of dispersed. The diaspora really began at that point. But there was only one return in all history where the people came back into the land from Babylon. That's the only one. And yet over and over the prophets talk about a second return. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover. The second time, in case you missed the again part. The second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamat and from the islands of the sea which is lands to the west from far off places and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's what Moses is talking about. That's what Isaiah prophesied. And that is the second, the second return, the, uh, the restoration that we are looking for for Israel. Verse 9. And then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your ground. I know it says offspring, offspring, produce, but it's fruit. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, it is the remedy from, for turning away from. Turn to. That simple, that simple word we talked about on Sunday. Jesus, the turning back. Even someone feels like, ah, oh, he's distant, he's far away, I can't get to him. Turn. Turn. He is right there. And all Israel will turn. There is a point in time, and see, this is the answer to the Romans 11 question, where Paul says, and all Israel will be saved. Some have confused that and said, oh, so because they're Jewish, they'll be saved. No. No, no one's saved because you're anything. You're saved because you believe in Jesus. That's salvation. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is emphatic. There's no way around that. It's only through him. So all Israel will be saved, but through faith in Jesus, when, how? At the end of the tribulation. There is a point in time where every last living Jew on the planet will be saved. All Israel. What a marvelous day that's going to be. God is able, and I mentioned this also Sunday, he's able to look beyond their rebellion all this talk, all the warnings of where their rebellion is going to take them and the curses and the mess of that, he looks beyond their rebellion to their restoration. He's already thinking about that. Before they have even rebelled, he's looking to restore them. It's marvelous. And when's that going to happen? 
Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they'll look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah 13, verse 8 says it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, two-thirds of Israel. It's not because anybody wants it that way. It's not even because God wants it that way. It's because that's what's going to happen. But I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And all Israel will be saved. That's the moment, that marvelous moment, that beautiful moment when the prodigal returns to the father with all their heart and soul. Back in Deuteronomy 30, again, look, look at verse 9. It says, so Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, that is Sukkot, when all Israel comes together to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read from this law. Oh, wait, you know what? I skipped you, didn't I? Are you back in chapter 30? We should be back in chapter 30. So go back to chapter 30, verse 9. I was ahead in verse 31. I was so excited to get there. <laughs> verse 9 again says, the Lord will rejoice over you for good. The latter part of that verse, <laughs> just as he rejoiced over your fathers. The father's going to rejoice. The Lord will rejoice over you. That word rejoice, lasus, it's delight. The Lord's going to delight over you, Israel. Lasus, it's, it's joy expressed. Joy that is obvious. Joy that, can you imagine what it's going to be like to watch God express joy? Lasus, delight. This word is used four times by Moses in Deuteronomy. Four times, it's used right here twice, and then it's used back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63. Let me remind you of this verse. It shall come about as the Lord has delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. He's going to take delight in that? Yes. Why would God rejoice or express delight over their destruction being cast out of the land? Here's why. Because he knows that very destruction and being cast out is what it's going to take to lead to their restoration. And he delights over that. So he's delighting in the process. And he delights over the fact that he's going to delight again over Israel. Verse 11 of chapter 30. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach it's not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. No, the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Romans chapter 10, read the parallel, read Paul's explanation of this. We talked about it Sunday. 
See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. Interesting, today life is being debated at our Supreme Court. Pray about that. Pray about it. It's, it's pretty intense because both sides of the, of the abortion debate are so dug in. I, I told Jake today, if this went down, if, if the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, and I am all in for the striking down of Roe v. Wade, but if the Supreme Court strikes it down, that could spark civil war in America. That's how intense this is and how far the other side, the, the, the abortionist has gone from any kind of understanding of life. Moses, even back then, said, choose life. I've set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live. See, these are good things for you. This is good for you. It's like the old Life cereal commercial. When I was a kid, this new box of Life cereal sat down on the table by mom, and three kids were sitting there going, you're going to try it? I'm not going to try it. You try it. You're going to try it. I don't know. It's supposed to be good for you. I'm not going to try it. Hey, let's get Mikey. <laughs> right? Mikey sits down and digs in, and they're like, he likes it. Hey, Mikey. That's the law. These are the commands of God. We start to taste and see that the Lord is good. We start to walk these out. Wow, I like this. I like how righteousness wears. I like how it tastes. This is good. That you may live and multiply in the land, and the Lord may bless you in the land which you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Let's just be clear. <laughs> you will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your seed, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, holding fast to him. This is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to give them. And we went through all of that on Sunday. Beautiful section of scripture that, that Israel, Israel's gonna come to that. Israel's gonna come to that place of love. Not yet, and it's been a long road. But this is their life. This is our life. Now, we've come to the final counsel of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 31. So Moses went and spoke all these words to the people. And he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. Happy birthday to you. Enjoy me. Happy birthday. Moses' birthday. So he's saying, not only I'm 120 years old, he's saying, today. So this is the moment. This is the day. Moses is 120. says, I'm no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. Remember Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. Yeshua, Joshua, picture of Jesus. The law can't get you in. Joshua has to take you in. Jesus has to get you into the promises of God. 
So Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. Verse 4, the Lord will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Ug, kings of the Amorites and their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you. You shall do to them according to all the commandments which I commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into their land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. I'm 120 years old today, Moses says. Coming and going is getting difficult. Getting out of the easy chair, making my way out of the tent, out here to talk to you all. Not as easy as it used to be. I love this about Moses. The body's wearing out. 120. Body's wearing out. But you know what? Look over at chapter 34 real quick. Just peek over there at verse 7. Chapter 34, verse 7 says, Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. In other words... Moses, while his body was wearing out, was sharp as a tack. He was as clear thinking as ever he was, as a young prince of Egypt, as a, as a shepherd of Midian, as a deliverer of the people. He is sharp, mind and spirit sharp, body wearing out. That's, that's the deal, folks. That's the corruption. And it strikes me that, you know, as we age, we have a choice. You can't choose what's going to happen with your body. You can get, you know, surgery and Botox and whatever, but that's not going to last long. <laughs> Honestly, you're just going to end up looking weird. You can try to maintain the body as long as you can. It, it's going to wear out. There's no stopping it. But your mind, your spirit man, your spirit woman especially, can grow in the Lord, can be strong in the Lord, and the two directions, and I'm not talking about, you know, there are, there are health issues and there are things like Alzheimer's, and I understand all of that, but what I'm saying here is you and I have a choice as we age as to how we're going to age. We cannot choose how our bodies are going to go, but we sure can choose how our spirits are going to go. And we can either be, guys, grumpy old men, or we can be like Joshua and Caleb fighting to the end. You know, we can be, ladies, snippy old women. Or you can be beloved. You know, you, you can be, her children will rise up and call her blessed. And that's the decision you have. Can't do anything about the body. It's going to go. Just let it go. But, <laughs> well, no, don't let it. That's up to you. Spirit. Spirit matters. What you're doing tonight, you're feeding the spirit and you will increase in that. Which actually even makes when the body's not working so well. I can't come and go like I used to, Moses says. But man, his vigor's not abated. His eye still has that spark. And so Moses does something here. He, he knows what to do next. He shares something that is a fundamental truth, and it's as true in the church today as it was in Israel back then. Every good leader is a follower. Every deliverer has himself been delivered. Every teacher is a disciple. Someone might say, well, except Jesus. No, even Jesus. Because Jesus discipled himself at the feet of the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak the words the Father gives me to speak. That's what a disciple does. 
So he's the perfect example of the perfect disciple. But every teacher is a disciple, and this is something every good delivered disciple understands. Jot this down, note this, it's so important to get. I am expendable. This church doesn't need Pastor Rick. I could be gone tonight. I'm expendable. I've told you before, Jake will just slide right in. We've taken to try to dress alike so you don't even notice. I'm expendable. You're expendable. That doesn't mean you're not valuable. Doesn't mean you're not worth the blood of the lamb that was shed for you. But you're expendable. We have our places here. We do what we do, but we're expendable. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 5, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Why? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And I love, Paul does that twice. He calls himself a drink offering. Think about what a drink offering does. Take a bottle of wine. You've got the altar. It's blazing hot. You pour the wine in the coals. What happens? It's a vapor. It's gone. I'm a drink offering, Paul says. I am this close to being completely out of here. The Bible says, James 4, 14, you are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So you can either just be a vapor, you can just be gas, <laughs> or you can be a drink offering. Either way, you're going to vanish from this earth. But if you vanish as a drink offering, oh, you go to the Lord. You go to the Lord. So Paul is talking to Timothy about transition and Moses is talking about Joshua and to the people about this transition that's going to take place. He's passing the baton, but God's work is never limited by a single person. Don't think so highly of yourself that you are irreplaceable. You aren't. You, you are. Irre you're irreplaceable, but you can be replaced. You're unique. God loves you but you're expendable. So be content with that. And if you're going to vanish from this planet, vanish as a drink offering. Well, verse 7, then Moses called to Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous again, for you shall go with this people into the land. He says, verse 8, the Lord is the one who goes with you, ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That's the stuff of strength and courage. You'll hear this over and over applied to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. It's Joshua's mantra. I'm sure he had little t-shirts made up, a little symbol of Joshua's head. Be strong and courageous, you know. That was his deal. It was spoken to him time and time again. And the stuff of strength and courage is very simply this. He will not fail you or forsake you. That's how you're strong. That's how you're courageous. He will not fail you or forsake you. It is not your strength. It is not your power. It is not your ability. He will not let you down. I love the passage in Hebrews 13, 5, and he's quoting right from here. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. It's what I call the five negatives that speak a positive. Because it's literally Hebrews 13, 5, I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. Five negatives in that statement, but it's a powerful positive. God is not going to let you down. That's my strength. That is my courage. That's how we keep going. But why Joshua? You ever think about that? 
Why is it Joshua and not Caleb? I kind of like Mad Dog. That's what Caleb means, dog. And the guy's crazy. I want to fight giants. You know, he's 85 years old. I want to fight giants. That's Caleb. Why not Caleb? Caleb's a fighter. Joshua, Joshua's something else. Now, this is not to say that Caleb isn't a man of God and didn't love the Lord and wasn't a follower, but while, where Caleb is a fighter, Joshua, Joshua's faithful. He's faithful. Sure, he, he was a fighter too. Exodus 17, verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Remember the fight against the Amalekites in the, in the valley? And, and Moses said, I'm going to go up on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Great picture. And it says, Exodus 13, 17, 13, that Joshua, with serious prayer cover up on the hill, you know, there was Moses and there was his and her holding up his hands, Aaron and her holding up his hands, and, and the whole time the hands were up, prayer, worship, devotion to God, they were, they were victorious. And so they won that battle. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Joshua's a fighter. Dude knows his military strategy, but he's more than that. And that's not why God chooses him to lead the people into the land. I believe Joshua was chosen because he was a faithful man and a man of faith given by God, but a faithful man and a man of faith. He was a faithful man because Joshua was trustworthy. You notice that he's just there. He's with Moses. Exodus 24, 13 says, Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up the mountain of God. Joshua went up with him. Halfway up, stopped, and Moses went all the way up to be with the Lord. But Joshua was there, man. He's spot on. He's faithful. He's like a faithful old hound dog. He's just there when you need him. He's a man who was faithful and he was a man of faith because his trust was in the Lord. One of my favorite verses about Joshua, Exodus 33, 11, when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. That was the tent of meeting, which at that point was outside the camp. This is pre-tabernacle. They're building the tabernacle, but pre-tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting outside the camp, you know, go out to meet with the Lord, and then Joshua stayed. This, this man of faith wanted to be as close to God as he could possibly be. And that's what he did. Back to Joshua in just a second. Verse uh, 9 going forward, which we already read, but I'll read it again. <laughs> so Moses wrote this law. He gave it to the priest, the son of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. If you have a pen, just underline those four words. I think it's instructive. Moses wrote this law. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses wrote this law. Who wrote Leviticus? Moses wrote this law. I could do it with all five books of the Pentateuch, of Torah. Moses wrote Torah. And there are still people today, they call themselves higher critics. I think, I don't know what they're higher than, maybe higher than a kite. But the higher critics who come along and they espouse an idea that Moses really didn't write Torah. You know? Now, it had to be later. In fact, there are people who say it happened in the post-exilic age. After the Jews came back from Babylon, they began to write this history. that was, It was just oral until then. So they started to put it together. Moses didn't write it. So Moses wrote this law. You've got to be an idiot to miss that. 
And it says it more than once, that Moses wrote the law. So why do people believe this other nutty stuff? Well, uh, along about the uh, 1800s, a couple of German theologians came along, Graf and Wilhausen, <laughs> and they proposed what's called the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis is the idea that the divine inspiration of Moses by God to write Torah didn't happen. They reasoned that writing hadn't been invented yet. So Moses could not have written Torah because there's no evidence of writing ever having been invented. And this is why, as our friend Roni says, we love the archaeologist. We love the archaeologists because archaeology has proven since the documentary hypothesis that is still believed, actually it's put even further out, the, di the, the documentary hypothesis, hypothesis began saying it was written after Moses, maybe in the time of Josiah the king, and now the higher critics today say, no, no, it couldn't have been, then. It, it, it was post-exilic, it was around the 500s BC, that's when it was written. And they say because there was no writing. Well, it's already been debunked. Archaeology has shown us that writing existed long before Moses. We have the cuneiform writings on tablets in Sumer and in Mesopotamia, proof that writing was going on for a long, long time before Moses came along. That's not a problem. It's not an issue. Besides, Moses was schooled in Egypt. It's not like he was a country bumpkin here, gang. He, yeah, he shepherded for 40 years, but 40 years before that, he had the top-notch training that you could get in all the world. Not to mention the fact that the Bible says so. And I come back to this time and time again. If the Bible says it, I'm either going to believe it or I'm going to shut the book and go home. Just close it up and go home sad. It's not a matter of picking and choosing. You take the whole thing or don't take it. And this book says, Moses wrote the first five of this book. And I ask you this question I've asked before, is God capable of keeping his word? See, I think so. I don't think we have to worry about who wrote this. Uh, so Moses wrote this law. And he gave it to the priests of, and the sons of Levi to, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and all the elders of Israel. Verse 10, then Moses commanded them, saying at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, which is Sukkot. Good, good, Sukkot. Feast of Booths. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Not just three chapters, the whole thing. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, and the alien who's in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. This is the deal. M Moses says every seven years, when you all gather together for Sukkot, all the young and the old together to stand. Young and old, no children's church, no children's ministry, no children's Bible time. You're all in there stuck listening to the reading of Torah. The whole thing. Every seven years. Wow. Can you even imagine? Let's try it tonight. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
every seven years, they would just have a reading straight through of Torah. Or at least they were supposed to. Whether or not they did is, you know, subject to question. When we started Deuteronomy, do you remember way back, oh, low those many months ago, we began this book and I told you about a few guys who tried to set preaching records. Remember those stories? A couple of guys who tried to see how long they could preach nonstop, you know, and just kind of keep going. And there are some different records that were out there. And I don't even remember. I'd have to look back at how long they were. Let me ask you this question. Torah aside, just five books of Torah they were to read. How long would it take to read the entire Bible? Genesis through Revelation, if you just started reading and you did not stop, how long? And it's actually been estimated. At pulpit speed, <laughs> which I think can vary depending on how you know, long into the evening you are, but at pulpit speed, 71 hours. If you want to read Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, it'll take you 71 hours to go through the entire Bible. Now, I can say that, and you can respond and say, I ain't got no 71 hours to read the Bible. So, divide it into 365 days, and you come up with 12 minutes. You got 12 minutes? Can you read the Bible for 12 minutes a day? If you read the Bible for 12 minutes a day, I, that's how long it takes me to make tea. 12 minutes. I know you should steep it for three or four. I want all the caffeine I can get. 12 minutes. What do you do that takes 12 minutes anymore? If you read the Bible just 12 minutes a day, you will read the entire thing through in a year. Moses says every seventh Sukkot, hold a Bible conference in Jerusalem. Call everybody together, youngest to the oldest and the alien who's among you. Call them together. Why? Because Sukkot is the most wonderful time of the year. That's the time, man. It's the most joyful celebration in Israel. Sukkot. Read the word there. Why? Because the word is a celebration of divine communication and revelation and restoration and redemption. So celebrate it. And by the way, I just mentioned this. There was, a, there was another person who was invited to the reading of Torah every seventh year. Verse 12 says it. The alien who is in your town, which literally translates your alien, which indicates a little bit of ownership for the foreigner, for care and looking after. Your alien is invited to come here Torah every seven years. Why? Because even here we see hints of God inviting the Gentiles to hear the truth. We already see the light, the intention of the light going out to the entire world for salvation. God says, Isaiah 55, 11, my word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua, present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Note this, Moses is passing the baton, but God does the commissioning. It's his call. It's his calling that is now on Joshua, not Moses. Moses can hand it over, but God says, okay, you, you told him, Moses, that he's going to lead after you. I want both of you front and center at the tabernacle. Come on before me, boys. Verse 15, the Lord appeared in the tent 
in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. This is a profound moment. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Literally, you're about to sleep with your fathers. And this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Hold that thought for just a second. Why does the Bible use the word sleep for death? You notice that? Now, I, I want to clarify this. Now, I, I actually just kind of added this in, but I think it's so significant People talk about soul sleep. I've talked about soul sleep before. They use things like this as a proof text that when you die, you're just in this state of soul sleep. You know, just to sleep there. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible very clearly teaches that is not the case. But every time, or most times, when death is even mentioned in the Bible, it uses the euphemism of sleep. Here, you know, you're, you're going to sleep with your fathers, Moses. He's going to die. He's going to die, he's going to sleep. It's the same thing. Why? The Lord also, when Stephen was stoned, Acts chapter 7, the Bible tells us as he was being stoned to death, it says, and he fell asleep. Well, we know what happened. Stephen died. Oh, so it must be soul sleep. No, it's not. Jesus even used the phrase. He said in John chapter 11, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Lazarus was dead. Jesus knew Lazarus was dead. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of a literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> That's not supposed to be funny, but it is, you know. Well, if he's sleeping, he's going to get better. <laughs> Gather around, doofuses. Come here, come here. Now, Lazarus is dead, so he uses the euphemism sleep for death. Why does the Bible do that if soul sleep is not legit? Number one, because of the physical appearance of the body. Very simply, the person looks asleep. They don't really look themselves, but they look asleep. So, euphemism, sleep. But, and get this, and it's important, it is also the physical condition of the body. There is a sleep of sorts. Not the soul, not the spirit, but the body. Now, just read this to you. You've heard it before. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as having put it on, we will not found, be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So the body, man, is dying. It's going down. The tent is falling apart. And we long to be clothed with something eternal. Paul says, therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 
We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul says, when I die, I go home to be with the Lord. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and I don't know which one to choose. To stay here because that'd be advantageous to you or to go home and be with the Lord. Paul knew and taught very clearly, the Bible teaches, that when a person dies in Jesus, their spirit goes home to be with the Lord. That is not sleep. It's not sleep, that's presence. That's right there with Jesus. So why does the Bible use the euphemism of sleep? Because the body looks asleep. Because the body lays down. Because the body is either placed in a coffin and, and buried in the ground or it's, or it's cremated or whatever we do, all the stuff we do, you know. Uh, I guess now you can actually have your body become uh, part of landfill or um, what, what's, what's that called where we, I can't think of the word. Compost. That's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, compost me, baby. With all the milk scraps and the junk from the... <laughs> Anyway, but you can do that. You, if you want to compost, that's fine. Burn up in a compost pile. There are companies that will do that for you. But the point is the body, the body sleeps. Body is useless. The body's not going to be walking around when your spirit's home with the Lord. Thank the Lord, because if Deb came in after she died, it'd freak us all out. You know? <laughs> there goes the whole zombie apocalypse idea right there. It's not going to happen. Body sleeps, but the spirit, the spirit lives. The spirit lives. And I'm telling you this just to say that we don't need, brothers and sisters, to fear death any more than we fear going to sleep at the end of a long day. Because that's all that's happening to the body. I don't know about you, but at 57, when I, my head hits the pillow, I, every now and then I make a, a happy sound. Cheryl's used to it. I crawl in there, I stretch my legs out, I pull the covers up, and I just go... <laughs> I've been waiting for this all day long. You know, you love those. And that's all it is. That's death. Soul's going to go to sleep. The body's going to go to sleep. Let's be clear. Body's going to go to sleep. Spirit, soul, wide awake, alive, home with Jesus. And Jesus even says there's going to be a great awakening. What did he say about Lazarus? I'm going to awaken him. His spirit? No, his body. I'm going to go awaken his body. And that's exactly what happened. And Jesus shows up there and Martha comes running out and she's, she's all upset because Lazarus is dead. His body is asleep. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me, speaking about the raptured church, will never die. Some of us are not even going to have our body go to sleep. We're just going to be instantly glorified. I can't wait. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? And I always have to answer in the affirmative. Yes, Lord, I believe this. I believe the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Note that the dead in Christ, that is the necros, the corpse, rises. But in verse 13 of that same chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says God will bring with him those whose, literally whose bodies have fallen asleep. He'll bring the spirits of those who have died with him. The body, the sleeping body, he's going to awaken and there's going to be that instant transformation and that's how it works. So soul sleep is not a thing. Body sleep, I can, I can go for that. <laughs> so after 
Moses' body lies down and sleeps, God says the people will rise up and rebel. Moses lies down to sleep. The people rise up in rebellion. Verse 17. Stay, we're almost done, truly. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, it is not because our God, or, or is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods, that the heart turns away. They will turn to other gods. And we're right back to where we began tonight, the heartbreak of betrayal after all that God has done for this people. Why again does God give all the warnings that he gives here? A, because they're true, they're coming. B, because love warns, as we said. But there's one more reason that God's bringing up all the stuff right now. He wants Moses to do something. He, ins he instructs Moses to write a song, verse 19. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel to put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them. This song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants, for I know their intent, which they are developing today before I have brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel, and it's brilliant. At 120, the deliverer lawgiver is now going to be a songwriter. And we will hear the amazing lyrics. In fact, we're going to take a couple of Sundays and next Wednesday to work our way just through chapter 32 just through the words of the song of Moses. It's, it's beautiful. Why a song? Because you remember a song. We are farmers. <laughs> See? You remember a song. But this is far more than a jingle. And Moses courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. The Lord commissions the Lord commissioned Moses. The Lord commissions Joshua. The Lord commissioned you. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let me ask you, how are you doing with the Great Commission? I love the Great Commission. I love the words. I love the direction. I love the power that's behind it and the authority that's there. I love seeing it in the red letters and knowing Jesus is speaking this to us. But man, it's difficult. What a measure. Have I made disciples of all nations? Am I doing this? And, and I've talked to too many believers who say, I, I hear the Great Commission. I just don't know how to do it. You know, I... I'm a bus driver, I, I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor. I, I have this job and, and I'm trying to raise my kids and, and 
leave my family? And how do, how, do I, how do I embrace this thing as big as the Great Commission? And my answer to you is very simple. Don't ask me. <laughs> ask the commissioner. This is back to Sunday, the, the whole simplicity of following Jesus. You don't need me to tell you how to keep the Great Commission. You need to ask him. Lord, how do you want me to keep the Great Commission? Show me. Lord, give me faith for this. Lead me into opportunity to keep the Great Commission in the way you want me to keep it as part of this body, as one of the ligaments or maybe a pinky or a little toe. Help me in the body to keep the Great Commission, Lord. Don't ask me. He will give you opportunity. He will work through you to keep that commission. Verse 24, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law. <laughs> when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete. How clear does it, does it get? That Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, take, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. This book of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah. Take this, all in scroll form, all scribed by Moses, written down, this will be the witness. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak the words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you when? In the latter days, the tribulation. This is prophetic of the time of Jacob's trouble. No question. And he says, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. And we stop right there tonight. The time of Jacob's trouble, evil, is going to befall this people in the latter days. It, it, it's been befalling Israel ever since the first heart turned away, ever since the days, the time of Moses. Words of warning. And these words of warning of Moses will show up in chapter 32 in the words of a song. And they will show up in chapter 33 in the words of blessing. It's an amazing chapter as Moses blesses the people, all the 12 tribes, or most of them. And then finally in chapter 34, we will see a burial. But let me conclude just by saying, it's interesting, Moses says, I know your rebellion. I know that when I die, you're going to rebel far more than you ever did. And we've heard that spoken since then. That's, this is not the first time. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know after my departure, speaking of his death, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Okay, threat from the outside. But then Paul says, and from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Moses says, I'm going to lie down and Israel's going to rise up in rebellion. Paul says, I'm going to be poured out as a drinking, drink offering and there will be those among you in the church who will rise up in rebellion. And so literally these words of warning that, that Moses wrote down, it's another example. It's a picture of other words of warning, warning by love, but spoken by Jesus. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But Jesus also said in John 12, 47, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke will judge him in the last day. Words of warning, words of love that will witness one way or another to whether or not we trusted him. Father, increase our faith. God, give us a strong faith. Help us like Joshua to be strong and courageous because you do not forsake your people. Help us, Father, to follow after you. And, oh, Lord, in these last days, in this time of, of the church with little strength, I pray that you would empower us simply to be a faithful people. Lord, the Great Commission, it does at times seem overwhelming, but you've put us together to carry it out together. Lord, for some, maybe the Great Commission is as simple as a shoebox. Maybe the Great Commission is as simple as inviting a neighbor to dinner. Maybe the Great Commission is actually getting on a boat or a plane and going overseas. But Lord, you're the commissioner. So I pray that you would give us faith for that which you have commissioned us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 